Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, marking the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the crucial role Canadians played, we hear from author and historian Ted Barris. Also, how to fix Canada's democracy, Dave Meslin on his new book, Teardown. What is the connection between road design and road safety? Greg Hart from Vision Zero YYC joins us. Plus, the stars of the show Personal Growth, which goes this weekend at Calgary's Loose Moose Theatre. There were the Canadians whose robust sense of honor and loyalty compelled them to take up arms alongside Britain from the very, very beginning. Uh, well, some uh, much appreciated words today from the United States president speaking at the 75th anniversary ceremonies today, marking uh, the D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, and obviously uh, a major shift in the Second World War, the beginning of the end uh, for Nazi rule over Europe. And obviously, there were a great many Canadians who contributed to that. Over 14,000 Canadian soldiers stormed ashore that day, 75 years ago. And you only imagine what was going through their minds. Uh, about 350, just over 350 of them never made it to the next day. Never saw the sun rise on June 7th, 1944. So it took quite a toll. Uh, as much as we caught the Germans off guard, it was still hellacious fighting. That all of the planning, all of the secrecy uh, allowed for a successful execution of the invasion, allowed us to take those shores, but uh, we had to press on from there. And that meant some, uh, some intense fighting, and obviously that, that meant casualties. Uh, but it is a day to reflect on what took place 75 years ago today, to reflect on the, uh, the, the strategy itself and the genius plan that we had to turn the tide against the Nazis, but an opportunity, I think, first and foremost, to reflect on the, the courage, the bravery of these young men, the heroism of these brave young men. Uh, someone who has written extensively about this issue, in fact, is in France today uh, for the 75th anniversary ceremonies. Uh, Ted Barris is an author, journalist, broadcaster, historian, uh, in fact, the author of 18 books. His latest, uh, we spoke to him recently, Dam Busters. He's also authored the book Juno, Canadians at D-Day. And he joins us uh, on the line here uh, from France. Ted, so great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Rob, a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to call me. I can just imagine how moving, how emotional it must have been today to be there uh, on the beaches of Normandy, to be there surrounded by other Canadians, Canadian veterans. Give us a sense of what that was like. Well, I would have thought, Rob, that um, with um, the number of veterans dropping off so quickly, simply because they're so elderly and are fading away and, and dying at such a rapid number that the uh, ceremony would be somewhat diminished. It was just the opposite. It was quite a huge occasion. Um, I don't know the numbers. I was in the middle of it all. And I would say that there were uh, easily 
five to 10,000 people at the event. And interestingly, not just all the Canadians, the students, the historians, the history buffs, the regimental uh, followers, but a lot of French people there today, um, people for whom the the passing of the torch, not of, of the warriors, but the passing of the torch of those liberated was very powerful. Get a strong sense that their presence meant a lot to the community, to the Canadians who were there, and certainly to the two prime ministers, the prime minister of Canada and prime minister of France. They spoke uh, eloquently and at length in French, which uh, gave them, the people of, of uh, Courchelles-sur-Mer, which is the, the town, the village uh, where the center of uh, the Juno assault uh, took place, um, has great meaning, even today. It does, and it was quite remarkable to see some of these images yesterday and today, uh, some of these uh, veterans well into their 90s, uh, who were not, not only there, but had not been there since that fateful day 75 years ago. And you can only imagine what must be going through their minds after all these years uh, to be on those beaches once again and, and to, you know, to remember what happened all those years ago. Absolutely. Um, there was, um, I, I happened to be standing next to uh, three cyclists. Uh, these are um, former soldiers who are members of a group called the Wounded Warriors. This is you probably talked to them before, Rob, about uh, the nature of their organization. They are essentially men and women who are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And Wounded Warrior is an organization that takes some of these uh, former soldiers to places like France on these occasions, and they cycle to the historic locations and talk about their own experiences and meet veterans. These three members of Wounded Warriors went down this morning before any of the setup was happening. They got permission to go down on the beach with a member of one of the field regiments that had come ashore at Kershaw sur Mer along Juno you know, Beach on the morning of June the 6th. And these guys, you know, proud, big, you know, brawny soldiers were, you know, babbling masses of <laughs> um, emotion yeah. next to this veteran. They went down with a guy named Russell who was, um, in one of the regiments, and he just went down to the beach, you know, bent down and picked up some of the sand and was surrounded by these cyclists, these contemporary soldiers, and it just brought home for all of them the significance of the service that had happened there. I mean, you know, it's simple enough for us to do to the math, Ted. I mean, here we have people, they're, they're 95, 97 years old, so, you know, 75 years ago, you know, these guys were barely out of their teens, you know, and it's 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 hard for us, I think, to comprehend, right, just how young these, these soldiers were. I mean, you had the people in, in their 20s giving the orders to, to people who were s- still in their teens, literally, in, in a lot of cases. These were very young men. Very much so. We're, we're very fortunate, Rob, to have with us um, a D-Day veteran on on the tour. His name is Bill Novick, and as you suggest, with your mathematics, uh, he's a man who, at the time, uh, he flew over uh, Caen, the big city behind the Juno beaches, um, on the night of the 5th of June to destroy a bridge which would prevent a counterattack by German forces. Today, he is 90 six years old at the time he was in his early 20s and he was the pilot of a Halifax bomber which meant he was the um, commander of this extraordinary piece of aviation technology in the midst of this air war over France um, taking on the responsibility of a seven-man crew to get them into the target and back Uh, he even admits to us as we 
spend these days with him on the tour that he can't believe that he had that responsibility and capability and power, and yet um, he credits his crew for its uh, strength together, its teamwork for pulling this off, and somehow they all made it through. Right, all, all the preparation. I mean, the preparation for for that day. Uh, Canadian troops have been planning for that since uh, you know the middle of 1943. Uh, all the planning, all the secrecy, uh, but then there's still the actual fighting to be done. And you know, you, you've described it, and many have as, as Canada's longest day, but also, in many ways, Canada's proudest day. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people were coming up to me and, and asking me about that today, as we stood in the in the spectator uh, area of the of the ceremony about what it was about those Canadians that, that made the difference. I think, as, it, as was the case for many armies during the Second World War, um, these people were volunteers. They stepped up. They left their lives at home, uh, put them on the shelf, um, their marriages, their families, their businesses, their work, or in many cases, the fact that they were not employed, that they sought out this sometimes adventure, there's sometimes escape, but there's some to this great need to go and serve. Uh, we, it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary quality in people that makes them do this, but Canadians certainly were up to the, to the, the, the challenge. And, and standing next to Bill Novick, this 96-year-old pilot, and recognizing that he's still capable of walking the distances he has to to get to these ceremonies and along the pathways to cemeteries and locations, monuments we're visiting... He still, he looks and sounds uh, like he's still 23 when <laughs> he's <Yeah>. not. <laughs> well, you know, we talk of D-Day as, as June 6th. I mean, uh, these people, they, they set off on thousands of ships. I guess it was still technically the evening of, of June 5th. And I don't imagine uh, there was much sleep happening as they made their way over preparing for the invasion. Now, Juno then was one of, of five beaches uh, that, that were to be taken in this landing as the ones that Canadians were responsible for. What was the significance of that particular beach? Well, it was very similar to the, the three uh, beaches on which the British and the Canadians uh, came ashore were quite similar. The American beaches, well, I guess, in, and then Utah Beach, the, the wide, wide-swept beach utah was uh or i should say Omaha was quite different mm-hmm. um with the cliffs and so on and much more difficult to penetrate but for the canadians they they had been training and you talk about the secrecy it's interesting they'd been training with maps that gave them the topography of the shoreline they would be attacking they knew the features the the trees the the, the churches, the streets, the gun emplacements, all of that stuff, but the maps they were using were not named on the, on the physical paper. So they had a sense of the, of the destination, the, the objective. They just didn't know what it was. They found that out when the new maps they were given with the same physical features were handed them once the ships left England en route to Normandy. Then they knew from the names on the maps, that they would be the villages of Crucial-sur-Mer and Bernier-sur-Mer and Grey-sur-Mer and Aubin-sur-Mer. Suddenly, these physical features had names, and that's when they knew where they were going, to Normandy. Uh, there was obviously very intense fighting, and there were hundreds of Canadians. I think it was just over 350 Canadians uh, who died that day. Yes. Um, I think probably if you had asked one of the men I interviewed, Ray McCoy, uh, a stoker aboard one of the minesweepers, about the predicted or projected casualties, it might have frightened him into going home. 
he was in the, the sweepers that swept the channels. And the day before D-Day, actually on, on June the 4th, because D-Day was originally planned for June the 5th, on June the 4th, it was a Sunday, and he'd gone to um, the uh, church ceremony on board ship or on shore in, on the south shores of England. And they'd asked their senior officers uh, in the minesweepers what they expected uh, when D-Day happened. And they were told to expect as high as 60% casualty. In other words, six ships out of 10 lost, six men out of 10 lost. And when you're a stoker in the bowels of a minesweeper and you're locked in there in effect to, you know, keep the ship afloat, they kept all of the various sections of the, uh, the ship um, uh, cordoned off so that in the event of an attack, the ship could stay afloat longer. You're trapped down there. You'd never get out hearing that kind of statistic would be frightening uh, at best but and then and then to know at the end of the day end of the night in fact having reached the other side of the channel and swept it clear that you'd survived must have seemed like a miracle well and you know it could have been much different a uh, part of this was to to try to fool the the nazis and, and hitler had been convinced and that was part of the plan wasn't it that there was going to be a different invasion that it was going to be a calais and that normandy was was a fake that it was a feint and, and hitler fell for it yeah, that, I mean, there were a number of interesting coincidences, and I'm not familiar with all of them, but the ones that I, that I do know, the coincidence that, that occurred, um, they managed to fool uh, the Germans into keeping more of their panzer divisions, more divisions in total, toward Calais than, than in near Normandy because of the subterfuge, because of the suggestion of the buildup of men and weapons closer to Dover than to Normandy uh, or to Portsmouth and so on. So all of this ruse and all of this subterfuge and all of the uh, elements designed to fool the Germans right down to the very last night when an entire squadron, the same squadron I wrote about in Dambuster, 617 squadron, went out and they dropped what was called tinsel in the air on the way towards Calais from England to across to France, and the tinsel, the same kind of tinsel, or much like it, that you used to use on Christmas trees, they dropped in the air, and as they continue to progress with this drop, farther and farther across the channel all night long for about six hours, they convinced the Germans that an armada was indeed on its way to Calais. And this happened right on the very night of the, of the um, beginning of the launch of the ships, not to Calais, but to Normandy. Well, and it obviously, all of this, uh, as we all know now, uh, turned the, the course of history, turned the course uh, of the war. And, and I think also for Canada, I mean, obviously, we were one of the allies. Uh, but, you know, in, in a way, it was, I think, for Canada, establishing ourselves as, you know, not just part of, of the British Empire, not just part of the United Kingdom, but a country uh, unto ourselves. Uh, and, and that we were able to, to stand and fight and, and make a, an enormous and, and measurable contribution to this. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I remember when I put my um, manuscript together for the book Juno, Canadians at D-Day, published in 2004, I I had the good fortune to have an introduction written by the famous British historian John Keegan. And Keegan, in writing his intro to my book, made a very important point, not not to me or just to my readers. He had actually been involved, Keegan, an, an esteemed British historian, had made the point when the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings was being planned, he insisted as one of the organizers and an authority, obviously, on the D-Day landings, 
he has insisted that the Canadians be represented in the organization of the event, in the participation right down to the number of participants and the locations and so on. Um, he recognized as a, as a far uh, more knowledgeable historian than I that the Canadians could not be excluded from the equation, that they had to play a prominent role, not just in celebrating, but in remembering how powerful the Canadian contingent was in driving uh, through the centre of, of the uh, the Normandy Beach plan and, and making sure that their part of the deal was complete. Well, so many remarkable stories about these remarkable young Canadians. Again, that book is called Juno, Canadians at D-Day. Your latest, uh, as mentioned, Dam Busters. Much more at tedbarris.com. Ted, thank you so much for making some time for us here. I know it's getting late there in, in France, but I uh, really do appreciate this. I appreciate having the time to tell you about this and, and to give the veterans uh, so much more attention than uh, we have over the years. Uh, it's long overdue, and, and thanks for that opportunity. It, it's always great to hear from you. Thanks. All right, there you go. Ted Barris, uh, such a great writer, such a great storyteller, uh, and has devoted so much of his life to telling these hugely important stories. So as mentioned, uh, his book about D-Day, it's called Juno, Canadians at D-Day. I also understand Ted's got another book coming out later this year, so look forward to talking about that. TedBarris.com. Let's turn our attention to the state of democracy in Canada. And I suppose everyone's got opinions on how strong our democracy is or maybe what's needed to fix it. Uh, But there's a new book, I think, that's really trying to start a conversation about what ails Canadian democracy uh, and how we maybe take it back, for lack of a better term. It's uh, called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Dave Meslin is the author of the book. He's in studio with us here. In fact, he's in Calgary. There's an event taking place Saturday night, 7 o'clock at the New Library. Uh, Dave, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be on the show. Thanks. You know, what's, what stood out to me, too, just even looking at the book itself, you know, you got the, uh, like any author, most authors, you have the uh, kind of endorsement, the praise uh, on the back of the book. And so you, you've got uh, Nahad Nenshi, you've got Elizabeth May, you've got conservative MP Michael Chong. So sort of spanning the, that political spectrum in a way. So I guess, you know, kind of the entry point to this, maybe it speaks to our political tribalism these days. I mean, is, do you see this as a left-right kind of issue? Definitely not. Uh, there's nothing left nor right uh, about our political democratic deficit. In fact, one of the symptoms of the deficit is the polarization of right versus left. Yeah, you and, call um, it a blood sport. That's right. That's yeah. right. I have a whole chapter on blood sport and how we could how we could shift away from kind of a militarized political discourse towards something a little more civil. It doesn't really do any of us any favors when we flip back and forth between right-wing parties and left-wing parties if they're going to spend their first year undoing everything the previous yeah. government did. Um, that's not stable. It's not good for the economy. And it, it feeds cynicism. It does. But you get a sense that, you know, people's reaction oftentimes these days is what's wrong with our system? Well, it's, well, it's those people. The people on the other side. That's what's right. wrong with politics. Right. Uh, otherwise, everything's fine. But uh, as you see it, things are not fine. What What is your overall diagnosis then of, of democracy in Canada? What What ails it? You know, there's lots of ways to take a, the pulse of a democracy, and I think I think we're failing on on many levels. One is just we could call it consumer confidence. So any surveys we have of the degree to which uh, the ordinary voters trust politicians, trust the system. Um, the the rankings are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe politicians rank just above psychics right now in terms of <laughs> in terms of professions. Yeah. Uh, voter turnout uh, is pretty low. We we celebrate when we get into the sixties, but let's be honest, that still means one out of three 
voters stayed at home. Mm-hmm. That's nothing to brag about. Um, things like gender representation, we're actually losing ground on that. We rank 62nd right now in the world in terms of gender balance in parliament. And out of the 13 premiers in Canada of the provinces and territories, the current ratio of men to women is 13 to zero. So I, it's, um, and then of course the, the, the main thing would just be watching question period in action. And this isn't just my opinion or the opinion of many Canadians, but politicians themselves admit that they're embarrassed at the way they behave, that they spend a lot of their time yelling at each other um, and following orders and acting like trained seals. Yeah. And it's interesting because at one level, I mean, you see where where provinces recently have voted on the question of electoral reform and maybe people are, are, are leery about change, but we also see... You know, the rise of populism. We see what happened in the, in the U.S. and the U.K. where, you know, it's almost like people are rebelling against the status quo. They're embracing disruption and embracing outsiders. Um, so what, what's your sense of where Canadians are at? Are Canadians happy with the status quo or are we on the verge of boiling over in some way? I think we are on the verge of boiling over in some way. And I don't blame people. I think people look at the political system we have. They look at the way politicians treat each other. They look at the fact that our voting system often forces us to choose between two parties um, and often vote strategically. Mm-hmm. We see the polarization, and I don't blame people for being extremely frustrated and cynical right now. So the question is, do we allow people like Donald Trump to tap into that anger, or can we find a more constructive way to um, rechannel people's anger into, into something exciting? Can we actually start a project of re-examining our democracy from the top down and saying, maybe we can do this better. Maybe we don't have to use the same system our grandparents used just for the sake of tradition. Maybe we could improve on this. You know, you address this point in the book, and and I wanted to to address it here because you've been accused of playing into that cynicism by using words like rigged or corrupt. So for you then, in, in trying to speak in strong terms about what you see as wrong with Canadian democracy without playing into that kind of demagoguery we see elsewhere, how do you see that balance? I think if reasonable people aren't prepared to admit that the system is broken, then we're leaving that that space open for the ideologues to take advantage of it. And then they get to tap into everyone's anger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important for us to be honest and say, you know what, it's not working. And that's not an admission of failure. That's an opportunity for us to look at reforms. And, you know, today we're hearing a lot about the anniversary of, of, of D-Day and people who risked their lives and lost their lives to ensure that we would have democracy today. I think we owe it to them to make sure that that democracy is actually working. And I think what, what we have right now in our parliaments is actually a mockery of what democracy is supposed to be. We have 338 grown adults who spend most of the time in the House of Commons acting like children. That's not what people died for. We can raise our expectations and we can admit that we currently have a system that is designed to polarize, to maximize hostility and bring out people's worst. Why wouldn't we change that? Well, yeah, and it becomes a question, I guess, is, is it the people or is it the system? That maybe we just need better people, some would argue. You argue that it's, it's the system. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a group called Samara that did these, these amazing exit interviews of members of parliament upon their retirement and asked them why they behaved the way they did when they were in there. 
And they all said, we came in here with the best of intentions and our surroundings forced us to become um, mob-like and, you know, to act like goons because that's what we're trained to do in the House of Commons. So the last thing we should be doing is pointing fingers at any political party or any political leader or, or, or the opposite, saying we can fix things by just bringing in some new party or some new leader. The system itself is broken. So what I've done is I've written a book that doesn't just lay out the, um, the, um, the problem, the diagnosis. The book is full of prescriptions. It's over 100 concrete, constructive, easy-to-read remedies that we should start experimenting with as soon as possible. But, I mean, is it, is it too idealistic? That's sure. I mean, we can point to flaws in Canada's system, but what, what system has it perfect? What country has it all figured out? None, none do, right? And so is it a case of maybe Canada's is less worse than, than other countries? What's, what's reasonable then in terms of what we can strive for? Well, I think on many rankings, we're actually doing terribly. So one example I already gave is we rank 62nd in the world when it comes to gender parity. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that really sucks. And if you look at voting systems, there's very clear data that the voting system we use uh, is one of the worst, if not the worst, um, for encouraging diverse populations to get involved and run and to have that play out. In terms of choice on the ballot, I mean – We've had two parties in power for 150 years, going back and forth. Um, whether you're on the right or the left, I think any rational person would admit that choice is a good thing. Um, it's stale and boring to have an election that where we already know it's going to be either blue or red in October. After 150 yeah. years of blue and red going back and forth. So when we have the animosity, when we have the hostility, when we have the centralized power in each party and MPs feeling like like they don't have a voice, one-third of voters staying home, I don't think we should be resting on our laurels and saying, hey, maybe things are okay. They're not. And the fishtail policy, that's the worst. When these new governments come in and say summer of repeal, and we we do this all across Canada, how does that benefit any of us when we're just flip-flopping back and forth between ideologues on the right and the left well it's interesting because we just had an election here in alberta and i think you know given the the, uh, economic issues that alberta's been dealing with in recent years the question of turnout came up a lot and clearly a lot more albertans came out to vote in this recent election and i wonder though i mean if if people are not voting because they're they're cynical about the system or people not voting because they're content you almost complacent in a way that maybe if if we're seeing high voter turnout, that's a sign of too much anxiety, too much angst, and that maybe a lower voter turnout is is a sign that people, well, for lack of a better term, don't really care how the election plays out because things are going well for them. It doesn't. I mean, I've heard that argument before. It doesn't really play out because if you're happy with how things are going, you'd have an incentive to vote for the person who was in charge mm-hmm. to make sure they maintain power. Um, to not vote at all means either you're a moron because you just don't you don't care who's in charge. You don't realize that the decisions that are made in parliament affect your life and the life of your family. And I don't believe people are morons. I think it's more likely that they believe that the system is kind of rigged. And I can tell you, I've worked on the inside of the system. I've been I've been a lobbyist. I've been a campaign manager. I've been an executive assistant at City Hall at at Queens Park, which is our provincial parliament in Ontario. And I can tell you from the inside, I've seen all the ways that the system really is designed to maintain a bit of an insider's club. 
and ensure that ordinary voices aren't heard. I don't blame people for not voting. If they think the system um, is going to be most responsive to those who can access lobbyists and those with the deepest pockets, why would they vote? So I think we need to reclaim the system, give people more hope in the system so everyone feels that they have a voice. Uh, and you talk about electoral reform in the book, and we, we, we touched on that briefly. I mean, uh, you obviously advocate for electoral reform, but do you, do you see that as, as, as the main vehicle to change, or is that one small piece of, uh, of the equation here? It's a big one. We're one of the only countries in the West that, that uses first-past-the-post. In fact, we're the only member of the OECD that's using it for all three levels of government universally. It's, we're kind of an outlier country, and in a lot of ways, we're the laughing stock of the West. I mean, if you went to almost any European country and explained that we have premiers in charge of provinces or prime ministers in charge of the country – Following an election where the majority of voters didn't vote for that party, mm -hmm. they would look at you like you're crazy. They'd say, what kind of elections do you have in Canada? If a majority vote against a party, how could they win the election? Yet that's what we do here all the time. So we have had some referendums, three in BC, um, two in PEI, one in Ontario. Um, I think change is coming. It's already started municipally in Ontario. London, Ontario, City Council has ditched first past the post. It's the first government anywhere in Canada to do so. And the cities of Cambridge and Kingston recently voted in favor of making that change as well. Uh, and the government of Quebec is on the record saying that they're, they're going to change away from first past the post uh, in the next well, two years. We've, we've, we've I know, we have, before, we've heard it from many people. I think that change is coming. I think people's frustrations are valid. I think people who are apathetic and... And disillusioned, um, I don't blame them, and I don't, bl I don't point the finger at them uh, for, let's say, tuning out the system, shrugging their shoulders, rolling their eyes, staying at home. What we need to do is create a responsive political system that gives people more choice, that makes sure their voice is heard, and transform a culture of cynicism into a culture of participation. But can it also contribute to polarization if we've got fringe parties that, that, are, that are giving voice to, to some of this extremism that we're concerned about? Is it more likely that those kinds of elements are going to have a voice in, in our parliaments and legislature? Quite the opposite. The, the, the guaranteed pathway to polarization is a two-party system. Um, America has a clearly defined two-party system, mm -hmm. and here we pretty much do too. When a third party arises, such as Wild Rose, it merges. Reform Party, it merges. There's always pressure on the NDP to merge with the Liberals right. so they don't split the left. P the definition of polarization is having two sides with nothing in the middle. Um, so I think it's actually really important to recognize that proportional systems allow a whole variety of parties to form to break down the binary polarization that we're so used to in Canada. In terms then of, of whether we're, we're seeing this this movement start to build, and, and I know, you know, for you, what, what kind of led you on this path to the book was a TED Talk you gave a few years ago and the, the incredible reaction that, that was seen to that. Just from what you're hearing from people, Dave, I mean, is it your sense that the tide is turning in Canada? The reaction to the book so far? Yeah, I mean, the book is already um, a bestseller in its third week, so that's a good sign. I took a risk by writing a book that is both angry and playful at the same time. Yeah. You know, the, it's called Teardown, so clearly I'm calling for a bit of a revolution right. here. But it's very constructive, and it's very easy to read. And the response I'm getting has been, has been overwhelming. Um, and what I'm hearing from people is, 
okay, what's the next step? How do we start to implement some of these changes? And at the end of the book, uh, there's, there's a, a bit of a call to action. I tell the reader, you know, if you like, I don't expect you to like all the ideas in this book mm-hmm. or even half of them, but pick one of them. And don't become a full-time activist, but just find a way to nudge that idea forward. And if we can all do that, we can help transform our democracy into something we're actually excited about. Imagine looking forward to an election instead of dreading well, it, I which is how a lot radio. of us... I, I look forward to every election. <laughs> but no, I get what you're saying, yeah. Uh, the book is called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Uh, as mentioned, uh, the event coming up Saturday night, 7 o'clock at the New Library. Dave Meslin, thank you so much for coming in here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. There's been a real focus as of late in Calgary on uh, traffic calming. In fact, there was a story just a couple of weeks ago uh, that the Transportation Association of Canada named Calgary uh, there are temporary traffic calming curbs as the winner of the 2019 Road Safety Engineering Award. The whole idea is to, to make roads safer. But if we're having to go back after the fact uh, and implement these kinds of measures, does it suggest that our original design was not what it needed to be? So I wanted to, to get into a conversation about you know, how we design our roads in our cities and uh, is safety first and foremost. It's certainly first and foremost on the minds of the folks at Vision Zero YYC. Joining us in studio to talk more about this is Greg Hart. He is uh, the co-founder of Vision Zero YYC, and you can find them at visionzeroyyc.ca. Greg, thanks for coming in here today. My pleasure. So traffic calming is kind of the the order of the day, it seems, and uh, the city's really patting itself on its back lately for these traffic calming measures. So what do you make of this approach? Uh, there is, as you say, a, a, a large volume of retrofitting that needs to be done to streets to improve their safety and livability, which is something that we don't always talk about. But if you make a road safer for all users, it typically also increases the livability of a street. So yeah. it becomes a less hostile place for all people and for businesses and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, when people think of road design, you think of, you know, is the road going in the right direction? Does it link up to other roads? Is it, is it well made? Is it proper asphalt and, and all of that? But road design, it, it means a lot more than just that. Yeah, it does. And, and one of the things that's really weird about this for most people is that when we're operating a motor vehicle, especially, uh, we are unco- we're not conscious of the interactions we're having with the environment as around us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're taking probably ninety to ninety-five percent of the total information to make decisions about what we do from things we're not processing consciously, and so the cues are actually in the design. And when it comes to humans, the thing that humans are most worried about is any threat to them. So the safer that something feels, the less attention people pay to things. I mean, that's in general. That's not just uh, dealing with uh, roads. And and so if we have designs that create a feeling of invulnerability or safety for people who are operating a motor vehicle, then you will see behaviors associated with that, which are Mm -hmm. increased speed and uh, less attention to what's going on around them. So do we have roads, too many roads in Calgary that, that encourage speeding? Definitely. So this is something, it's not specific to Calgary, but a lot of North American cities especially uh, built roads to make uh, the highest, sort of most convenient feeling for somebody who's driving in a motor vehicle. Yeah. So that includes things like quite wide lanes, uh, very clear views. Uh, you'll notice a lot of turning radius in, uh, in Calgary allows cars to maintain fairly high speeds, making a full 90 degree turn basically because mm-hmm. we've cut back the curb so much. 
So yeah, there is a, the vast majority of our road infrastructure falls into this category because it seems logical. We have a nice wide road, and and you know you, you can see in both directions. It's nice and wide open and clear. People think of that as safe. Absolutely, and that is actually that is the. That is how the evolution of uh, engineering went, was the idea that, well, people make mistakes. And so because people make mistakes, we're going to give them some room to make those mistakes. Mm -hmm. The thing that wasn't really considered at the time, which we know now in full force, is that when you give people more room to make mistakes, they make more of them. And they behave in a way where they're more likely to have a higher severity mistake occur. And so are all these traffic calming measures now kind of a a belated acknowledgement of that? Yeah, they are for sure. And, uh, and even those, it's very difficult. I can tell you of being involved in some of these projects. It's, it's very difficult even to get those traffic calming measures to the degree that we need to get them to, to really significantly change, uh, the behavior of motorists. So for instance, if we have lanes that are four meters wide, which are quite common in the city mm-hmm. and on a collector road, and we would say that we would like to get them down to say three meters. That's a huge change. Right. Uh, but it's very difficult to get it below 3.3 meters because fire trucks, because buses, because, yeah. you know, there's all these reasons that get thrown out. Well, I mean, the other thing is, once a road has been built, a community has been built, this is all in place. I would imagine it, it would be very difficult to, to have to go in and, and redesign roads completely. Yep. So are, are traffic calming measures kind of the best we can come up with? Yeah, they are. And I mean, if we're looking at uh, retrofitting essentially huge chunks of the city, uh, you couldn't retrofit everything in the city. It would just be completely non-feasible. But key chunks, which would normally be collector roads and smaller arteries, are the ones where you see the highest rate of collision between vehicles and also the highest rates of uh, conflict collisions between uh, people walking or cycling and vehicles. Uh, and so there's ways to do that. You can go in and rebuild the entire street. And so, for instance, 17th Avenue Southwest was completely torn up or is in the process of yep. being torn up. It's a huge multi $10 million project. The street is being put back basically exactly the way that it was in the beginning, which I would look at as being a generational missed opportunity. Uh, so we get opportunities when we do have to replace deep services. We can actually reformat a road at relatively close to no cost uh, on, on the whole package. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to go back and just tear up the surface of a road and redistribute the geometry of it is quite expensive, unless you're using the TC curbs that you mentioned in the uh, intro. It's interesting. Someone phoned the show a few weeks ago and, and said, you know, Calgary seems to have a lot of pedestrian bridges that, that you know, we try to, to keep pedestrians separate from vehicles in a lot of cases, but obviously in a lot of neighborhoods, we don't. And there's particular concern in a lot of school zones. Yeah. Um, so... You know, people are going to say, hey, you know, cars, cars get the roads. If we're designing roads, we got to think of cars because the roads are for the cars. Uh, maybe in some cases that is reasonable to think about. But if we're talking about neighborhoods, if we're talking about areas around school, how do we need to, to think of it? Yeah, we need to think about it in a different way. We need to think about the fact that many people use these rights of way to get to the places they're going or even who recreate around them. And uh, it's it's really important to think about the fact that uh, when we when we have a, for instance, neighborhoods in Calgary around the core, which we would call cut through neighborhoods, lots of commuter traffic goes through yeah. these neighborhoods. Uh, that commuter traffic, if it's not running on the conditions that are necessary for a livable community there, becomes something that take away livability from those communities. And so, m- what we often advocate is to say, in those sorts of circumstances, you're not going to stop people from using vehicles going through those areas, but we're going to make sure that the conditions are such 
that it benefits the people who live there first and not the people who are spending only a few minutes a day going through that area uh, because there's no getting away from the fact that even if we've created right-of-ways, those right-of-ways exist in a context, and that context is a neighborhood. It's not Deerfoot Trail. It's something where people are living and working very close to those streets. But, I mean, you know, you hear the argument that, hey, I mean, if, you know, people cross at, at Mark Crosswalks and we, we have uh, speed enforcement, that, that this should all be fine. Yeah, that is the way that humans are wired. I mean, we, we have, we think we have an enormous amount of attention, which we don't. Uh, we think that we have an enormous amount of willpower, which we generally don't. And we don't like to talk about that. And we have an unlimited amount of blame power. So when things don't go the way that we want them to, then we use enforcement or blame activities to try and see if we can hold somebody responsible for something. However, uh, it's not the person generally who's most responsible. We're not looking for responsibility in the infrastructure, for instance, which leads to it. I mean, even crosswalks, marked crosswalks with lights on them and everything else, that's probably your highest possibility for being hit by a car as somebody who's walking. Most of them occur in those marked crosswalks. And it's because of the attention issue. Somebody driving in a car is not necessarily noticing the crosswalk. And if you watch the human behavior of a person walking, they often will press a button, thinks that it magically does something, and they step out into the street. So we actually create scenarios which increase conflict. It's it's obviously dangerous to think that. People shouldn't think that. But you're right. I mean, they do. Yeah. Uh, are we seeing this change at all, Greg, in either some of the newer neighborhoods in Calgary, or are we seeing it in, in other cities? Oh, definitely seeing it in other cities, and uh, and it's becoming a more important thing in the sort of global competition. Uh, it goes along with things like adding cycle infrastructure and everything else, which, by the way, has been shown in a lot of research to improve the safety of roads for all users as well. Um, and so what we're seeing is in this global competition that cities are trying to position themselves in a different way. And, and so that is happening more and more. And Calgary has excellent plans around this. If you read the actual Calgary plans, they're very good in this direction. But I could say fairly, un, you know, fairly categorically that our strategic execution in the city is poor. Why do you think this is... Um I mean, it can be a polarizing debate, a controversial debate. And I think, you know, motorists feel like they're being picked on. Cyclists feel as though their concerns aren't being heard. Pedestrians, you know, same thing. Do they have a voice? I mean, people tend to get their backs up around these issues. Yeah, they do. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the nature of how humans are wired. I mean, we are, as a species, completely wired for convenience. We want the shortest possible direction between anything, whether that's physically going somewhere or even in our minds in terms of thinking about things. And we have a number of biases that are hidden from us. And if we, if we put certain things in play, including like you just put down lane markers on a street, the person who's operating a vehicle in that lane marker becomes entitled to that space. They start showing entitlement behaviors, honking at people who aren't moving fast enough, getting frustrated. And so this is part of human nature. And this is why design becomes so important. If you do it really well, you actually don't have these problems because everything becomes self-explaining. Yeah. And so there's no credibility issue. Like you're, you're, you're doing fine. And that's why if somebody gives you a speeding ticket in a 30 kilometer an hour per hour zone, but the street is actually designed for an 80 kilometer speed, which is not uncommon in this city, mm-hmm. people feel really cheesed about that. And there's a good reason to feel cheesed about that. It's not credible. And so that's where, we, that's where you start to see the, 
competition and people's backs getting up. And well, everything. and, you know, we were talking about that earlier. I mean, you know, even coming to work where, you know, come down Memorial and some stretches it's 80, some it's 70. Right. You know, you come up boat trail and then it goes to 60. And it said, well, these roads seem very similar. And there, there's, there can be a disconnect. You're right. Where we've all been on those roads where it doesn't matter what the sign says. It feels like I should be going 30. Right. right. It, it feels like I need to slow down in this neighborhood. Yeah. People, you know, people get conditioned to that. Yeah, absolutely true. And a memorial is a great example of a street that that is that doesn't physically change that much. And yet you have all these varying speeds on it. And that is also a problem that sits in with our playground zones as well, because Mm -hmm. there's nothing that changes on that street, except there's a yellow sign there that tells you you should drive 30. And uh, going back to my point about how we process the environment fairly unconsciously, if you're distracted about something, you're thinking about a meeting you have to go to or something just happened in your family, you're not looking for playground zones. You're taking in unconscious information from the rest of the world, and you're making decisions that you don't even know about. And that's a big part of it. All right. A lot of important information. Much more at VisionZeroYYC.ca. Greg, thanks so much for coming in here today. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks. Uh, There's Greg Hart, uh, co-founder of Vision Zero YYC. Well, it's going to be a fun weekend at the Loose Moose Theater Company here in Calgary. Uh, And we've got the uh, stars of the show Personal Growth which uh, kicks off tomorrow night at the Loose Moose Theater. And this is kind of an interesting uh, spin, shall we say, on what has become a real trend in society, this uh, self-help movement. So joining us to talk about personal growth are the stars of the production we have in studio with us, Lindsay Mullen. Hello. Uh, We have Alexa McCall. Hello. And we have Renee Amber. Hi. Thank you all for coming in. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having us. Namaste. Hey, we're, I didn't know that you did not serious news here. We do it all. What? Yeah. Well, you know, if you want to do, if we, we could do a serious political conversation. Don't get it twisted. This is <laughs> serious. We're raising so the vibration of the universe with this show. In this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. So who who do we credit for this uh, idea? Now, Lindsay, yeah, Lindsay was the one who came up with the idea of doing a show based on the self-help movement that's been all over social media and just, you know, annoying everyone on Facebook. And uh, so she called me a while back and said, hey, we should do a show making fun of this because everyone is just all about Facebook or sorry, uh, face masks and charcoal (laughs) and hot yoga and float therapy. And it's ridiculous and it may help people. But if you take a step back or not even like a regular step at it, it's it's crazy what also, these people are doing. I was going through a breakup and I was do- reading every self-help book, watching every video. Everyone I knew was telling me to learn to love myself and mm-hmm. I wanted to kill everybody. Really? <laughs> What's wrong with loving yourself, though? What do you got against that? Oh, no, we have nothing against it. <laughs> no, it's just so hard. We just hard. don't know what it means to love yourself. We're still trying to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, it's so difficult. Like, it's really hard when you're going through a rough time and you have to watch all this self-help stuff that actually makes you feel kind of worse mm-hmm. in a way because mm-hmm. you, you feel like, oh, I can't do that. I feel so down in the dumps. And so we wanted to be that show where people could come be their worst self with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, I've, I have, my library is full of self-help books. Like mm-hmm. I single-handedly have, have uh, made some ripples in the $9.9 billion industry mm-hmm. that is the self-help industry. Like I have spent the money. Yeah, so we've I, invested. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying that you shouldn't get this help. I own a deck of tarot cards. I'm just as much to really? blame as anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I just made fun of the float therapy, and I did it like two weeks ago, and it was amazing. Yeah, yeah you uh, I felt like a baby. You do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Is that the rule? So it's really you're, you're mocking Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah. really. Oh, we yeah. are. Oh yeah, she's not <laughs> safe. Her and the Dalai Lama, they ain't safe. No, <laughs> everyone. So much of it, right? When you think of self help, who do you think of? And I think you're kind of describing what Gwyneth Paltrow has become. Mm-hmm. You got people like Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, right? Yep. He's just this yeah, this muscular, classic. energetic, dominate the world. Right. But there's this whole new brand of like these evangelicals, like this Joel Osteen. Mm. It's all about yeah. God wants you to be successful and rich and it's self-help in a spiritual sense. The like, there's, there's so much There's so many channels. Like there's yeah. channels where you'll have a religious element. There's mm-hmm. channels where you'll have like a get rich quick, um, you know, some mogul like uh, Pitbull, the rapper will come tell me how to be more successful. Like there's And then there's everything, everything for dummies. You know? Oh yeah, like, everything for we, dummies. You know, so there's the whole yeah. spectrum. I was listening to um, The Universe Has Your Back on on Super Soul Sunday on the way here. So is that Oprah? Is that what? Super yeah, Soul? I'm just pretending to okay. do research, but really I'm doing it seriously. Yeah, hey, you know Oprah's coming to town. See, we have it on our our uh, board up there. Oh yeah. my Winfrey, goodness! June 19th at the oh Scotiabank Saddledome. Invite her for a private show. <laughs> <laughs> and and one thing, especially in my generation, is is the Instagram self help. That's oh, yeah. all over, and it's like hashtag fitspiration, and it's all these people with amazing weight loss stories, or you know, le- you know, hashtag double chin for the win, and all these things. And I've struggled with my weight, and you know, depression and anxiety, and all these things. And you go and you compare yourself to all these people, right. while self, while in in a way, you're like, I'm helping, I'm helping myself, like liking all these things. And so it's kind of, I think, one of the things that we're trying to go for is like. You can't compare your own personal growth journey to anyone else's. It's mm-hmm. all about what helps you in the moment and what helps you in the long run rather than, you know, looking at someone and being, you know, like this type of therapy works for them or why is their skin so clear instead of being, you know, like I really like, I don't know, goat yoga. I'm going to keep doing goat that. Goat yoga. Which is a thing. Goat I haven't tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's dangerous. Well, they're baby goats, right? Yeah, they're baby goats. I think it's quite adorable. Yeah, super cute. Yeah, I have a baby, and it can be dangerous holding her. But I think you touch on something, because it's one thing to see a guy on television say, you know, you follow my nine steps, and you'll also have a private jet just like me. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's it's a detachment. But we do, and we see it constantly on our social media stream, people that we know or kind of know or at least seem relatable to us. Uh, you know, making it seem like they're living their best lives. And mm-hmm. we sort of feel like, why aren't we? Why if, aren't we living up to that? Why am I not that person I went to high school with? Why am I not where they are? If right? I have one more person ask me to join their squat challenge <laughs> on Facebook, <laughs> yeah. hey, I'm going to lose my me? mind. Join my squat challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and yeah, But uh. you know, um, but you, saw, you talked about the nine steps. I, I was making a list of all the the books I have that have numbers in the title, mm-hmm. like the 13 steps to mental strength. Oh yeah. It's uh, always, you know, it's always a different number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I mean, what you're, you're saying is, uh, what, you know, what's different between them and us, but it's, it's really like, that's a slice of a moment of their lives mm-hmm. in which they're, they're like, you know, affirming maybe what they're aspiring to. And so it's obviously that's not, you know, it's not a one note life. Yeah. Comparing their highlight reel to your everyday life. That's, that's a step to depression for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, so. it's it's uh it, it's an addiction, right? Self help can become an addiction. Oh, definitely. And I I'm sure I have it. Like I'm addicted to to coffee, and I love reading self help books. Just there's just there's just it's like reading the it's like a modern version of reading a romance novel. Yeah. 
Yeah. But the romance is with myself. That could be me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's fodder here, obviously. This is some people have a lot of opinions on. What, how do you translate that into a show, right? Well, we were, uh, we, we met up over margaritas uh, and we were like, what are the main tropes of self-help? And some of the things, the words that get used. And so we made up a vision board because mm-hmm. a lot of therapists, if you don't know what a vision board is, if you want to manifest positive things in your life, you make basically like a grade seven uh, health class poster project where you cut out positive words and affirmations and pictures of the life you want to have. So we took like inspirational things like that to help inspire scenes. And then we also made a board called a trauma board. And it's just all <laughs> the horrible negative things we suffer through and we're going to make scenes based on audience members lives our lives right so this improv show we're taking these um these you know especially with the trauma board like some of the things i was cutting out from a newspaper i was like oh my god yep that's me yeah and then like same with the um same with the vision board and so we're going to take those ideas and uh audience stories and put them on stage in a way that is relatable but also humorous at the same time yeah between us we have over 40 years of improv experience so we're we're basically doing <laughs> scenes we're making them up on the spot yeah, so using that's, these that's things, right? very much the loose moose brand yeah oh, the very much. Element, right yeah this, it, i mean really it is a we're excited about the theme but we're very excited to do loose moose improv that short form, funny, truthful, fun stuff. Yeah, and in the, yeah. in the, yeah. the vein of like of lists, we do promise that at the end of the show, we're going to have um, a list that is based completely on that show. So, like specific to the audience in the room of how to improve your life. So, I do find and, and tell me more about you know improv as as an art because I, I get the concept of sitting around and you know writing a script and. Right. Editing it, rewriting it, editing it to nail down, you know, the perfect joke or the perfect character exchange. Improv's a different kind of beast, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of comedy requires, is it a different kind of skill set? How do you compare it to uh, acting where you're reading, you know, you're given a script and you rehearse it a certain way as opposed to just letting it flow? Having the ability to to act and to, to you know like to read a script and to embody that character is that's a great skill to have as an improviser. Mm-hmm. You can you can bring that to improv. Mm-hmm. But the the actually um, coming up with a story in front of the audience as it's happening is yes, it's its own skill. And it's a muscle. It, it's a muscle, mm-hmm. and it's like yeah. I always think of it as actually going to the gym. Like when we we, we grew up going to Loose Moose every weekend, and it's not. It, it's kind of like going to if you're a boxer. You know, you go to the gym, you go, you're up in the ring. You punch and people? You punch people. But you, you don't punch people uh, in improv. No, <laughs> but sometimes we get to kiss them on stage. <laughs> it's That's punchy. Fun. It can get punchy <laughs> up there. And, and yeah, so it's a muscle and you learn uh, just by instant feedback from the audience what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't. Right. Our goal, our goal on stage is in the moment trying to make a story that the audience cares about and that they can relate to. So we try to build relationships on stage through the characters and the stories that we make up on the spot. So we are really, um, especially through this show, we're trying to find a key spot where the audience can look and say, yeah, I relate to that, but also still find the humor in it, Um, which is a huge part of improv is just finding that, you know, chord that you strike with the audience that kind of brings them in more than, I don't know, uh, uh, like a stand-up might. might. And I'll... I'll be honest, like there is a method to improv. I think a lot of people think we just go up there and 
start yakking. But, it. <laughs> yeah, let's, it's not. We we take classes on it, mm-hmm. and the Loose Moose Theater, which has been in Calgary for forty years now, yeah, has years. offered oh, yeah. free classes in exchange for people ripping tickets and working concession and. I've I've moved out to Toronto and and done improv in other places and there's no company that offers that like like they do here. Like yeah. they train people to be great and then they send them off and it's fantastic. Yeah, mm. and on the topic of of self-help too, uh Loose Moose has really helped me grow as a person and uh grow as a performer but um also find out who I am as a person and what I value, which is something that, you know, I couldn't pay for for that, even though right. Loose Moose wouldn't let me because they're free classes in exchange for volunteer time. There is legitimate, genuine, beneficial <laughs> self-help, right? I mean, self-help sure. can be a positive of as course. much as it's commoditized nowadays, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're, we just sound cynical, but we're, we swear we're not that. Well, <laughs> but actually, we're not. And, and one thing I like about the Loose Moose is that um, there is a, a real throbbing heart underneath all of these scenes. It's yeah. not cynical humor. It's it's genuinely funny, but it's there is a... There is um, soul. a soul there, yeah, too. Yeah. It is also, by the way, a little bit, uh, shall we say, after hours. Oh, yeah. You know? Our show's at 1030 mm-hmm. at night. <laughs> yeah. Pass so your bed up. <laughs> yeah, drink some coffee. <laughs> Come hang out with us. But it's Friday and Saturday night. Live a little. I know. Yeah, we're in Ramsey. So, like, there are a lot of people who live <laughs> in the neighborhood. It's close to all the places you can get to with an Uber. Yeah, like the Lilydale Chicken Factory. Anywhere yeah. you want to go in Ramsey. <laughs> the old <laughs> adage, though, it is the, the sky gets darker, the humor gets bluer. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Hold true. I think so. This is yes. yeah. I mean, I guess if you compare it to like when you watch morning shows on television, it's very clean humor. Yes. So it would only make sense that if we're doing a late night show, that we're disgusting. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Some we part, didn't discuss that part. No, we didn't. <laughs> we'll, we'll be a bit naughty. We always have a little bit of naughty, but uh, but yeah, we'll keep our heart. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's Friday, Saturday night. Yep. Yeah, if you're 14 or older, I think you're fine because you've seen television, mm-hmm. so we won't truly traumatize you. And the beauty of improv is that if people go both nights, they might see it might be a little bit different. Yeah, they'll be 100% different. completely different shows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll even be wearing different outfits. Wow, we'll wash. Her. You don't see that in theaters. <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> All right, so tickets available at the door. Also, uh, loosemoose.com. Yes. Yep. They're $15 a ticket. Yeah, it's like going to the movies. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, we're like the Avengers, except there's less of us and <laughs> yeah. less fit. Yeah. Less fit. Yeah. But we're well, working on it because we're into self-help. That's right. Well, congrats on this. Personal growth. Uh, again, tomorrow night, Saturday night at, at the Loose Moose Theater. Uh, thank you all for coming in here. Thank really you. Appreciate thank, it. You. thank you so much for having us. Uh, that's Lindsay Mullen, Renee Amber, Alexa McKell. Personal growth this weekend at the Loose Moose Theater. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.